Welcome. Hi, thank you for having me. <laughs> when I say the word friendship, what comes up for you? You're gonna start with a hard one. <laughs> what doesn't come up for me? I, I feel very grateful when you say friendship. I'm a person who loves to connect and I'm a person who loves people and I'm a person who's really open to strangers. Friendship is one of the things that I feel rich in. Mm. I feel rich in connection, human connection. Interesting. While I'm hearing you say uh, connect, I'm kind of imagining what that might mean because I've never really thought exactly about what it means. You know, and when someone says they love people, which I have also said those same things, I guess I'm curious, what part specifically of people do you like the most? Like when you say you love connecting with them, what does that mean? To me, this experience, life on earth, is a, an experience of variety. And I enjoy being at the buffet of being here on earth and living in a city and also traveling to towns and villages around the world. And I'm excited about the variety of people who are here and the variety of experience. And I guess for me, friendship is about closing that gap of the alone time and, and having a moment of connection with someone that to me feels like a celebration. I love alone time. I'm a person who spends a lot of time alone, partly because my work requires so much time alone. So I might spend, you know, the whole first half of the day, almost every day until two or 3 p.m., um, maybe longer than that alone. And so it feels like a celebration to go to the marketplace, to be among friends or be among strangers and have that opportunity for a moment of connection. And to me, that's also about balance. I like to balance my alone time. My work is very contemplative. It's very much about connection to the uh, a sort of meditative state. And so I love being with other people because that feels like it balances out that privacy. <laughs> and it's it's nice that we're it's nice that we're here together. I would rather have an in-person connection with a person or a group of people. It would be my chosen way to spend my time. So two things really stand out from that uh, answer that I'm curious about. And the first is uh, the word contemplative. You know, you describe that you have to spend a lot of time alone because your work is very contemplative, which of course, you know, to me means you have to think about it a lot. You got to feel it out. You got to give it time to kind of gestate or whatever, you know, and that suggests that there's some kind of a journey between the beginning of where you start in a day or at a project in the end. And during that process, you, you change somehow, your mind changes somehow, something in you has shifted or been refined or, or, or something. And that's making me kind of wonder, like, would you say you're better at connecting with people now? than you were 10 years ago, 20, 30 years ago? And if so, what is it in you that's changed since that time that's allowed for deeper or more valuable or more interesting connections? Well, connecting with people has always come naturally to me. I've always had a great sort of social interest. But I think what has come more into balance with each passing year is that evenness between what my work requires in terms of time alone and then 
what my sort of social interest requires. Living in a city is largely about the energy of being around people and especially being in a creative community where everyone is working on a creative project that they're excited about. For me, that's a kind of energy. So I can get energy either from just being around people talking about their projects and being passionate about their projects or by being in deep nature. And I balance those things throughout the year. So I'll sort of go into the forest for a month and then I'll come into the city and I'll be around my friends who are making new works of dance or new new works of classical music or film or whatever it might be. If there's been a transition, it's about learning what the right balance of those two different energies is for me. But the social aspect of things has always come very naturally to me. I grew up in a big family. I have four siblings. So I was always around people in the beginning of my life. You mentioned that in the creative community, you get this sense of energy from people who are specifically making things that they're excited about. Uh, I can definitely understand that. And I'm wondering, is that one of the chief elements or indicators that someone is going to be a good friend with you? Do you have friends you connect deeply with who aren't making things that they're excited about? Certainly. I find that with all my friendships, there's some sort of mutual reason that we come together, but it's certainly not always a a creative trade. There are some friends that we come together because uh, there's a quality of listening that's happening or a quality of holding space that's happening, which is not at all connected to creativity. But in terms of being part of a large community of creatives, that has been an enormous gift in my life. And I find that passion is really an energy that travels between people. Mm. And so when I come into a group of people, let's say there's an event or there's an opening and I'm around 50 or 100 uh, members of my community, you can just feel this beautiful excitement travel sort of between us. It's, It's almost like a circuit of energy. That's largely why I choose to live in Los Angeles is because that quality of creative engagement and also excitement about creative engagement that happens here is so special. I, have, I haven't I have encountered the same anywhere else in the world on my travels. So for me, I get something from it that's so beautiful and so potent, and I feel so grateful to be alive here now in this place. I guess the thing that's standing out to me right now is to think of friendship as a certain kind of an openness between people that allows for a richer or fuller or more powerful amount of voltage, you could say, you know, of interchange. It's kind of interesting, I think, because it does seem to me to be one of the chief elements of what we call friendship, which is interesting to me because if you just have two people talking together, they're not necessarily friends, but then two people talking about certain things might also not be friends. And then two people talking about certain things in a certain way, suddenly it's friends. So it's this kind of subtlety that I think this podcast exploration is kind of digging into, you know, like what is it exactly? What is the moment when it becomes that? If it was something that we could become more aware of, could we do it more often on purpose? Because I'm sure we would all agree 
friendship is more valuable than not friendship. I would define it as having a moment of connection that makes us feel less alone in the world. It lights us up. It lights the other person up. It's connection, but it's also recognition. We're here together in this moment. There's something that we're sharing in this moment, in this interaction that is meaningful to both of us. In my case, lately in in the last, well, quite a few years, so much of it has been about this sort of energy of creative exchange that I mentioned. But for some people, it, it really depends where you are in your life and what you need. So it's really different for every person. For some people, it's really about commiserating because if they're in a place where creative inspiration feels quite far away from where they are because they're in a place that feels emotionally challenging, just commiserating, just having a moment of connection where they can share maybe a sadness or a vulnerability or a feeling of being trapped or whatever their experience is with someone else, that's their magic moment of connection. Whereas, Mm. you know, sharing joy might not feel uh, like that's a place where they can get very often. You know, that's the magic of friendship is that we're drawn to the person who is a match for us in that moment. And that's why it's not like one person walks in the room who could equally match in friendship on the same day with everyone. It's like, who do you match with in that room? And it's not just being twins because everyone brings Mm -hmm. a a gift, the gift of themselves and who they are. And then your gift will be a perfect sort of medicine for someone else and someone else's gift will be a perfect medicine for you at that moment. That's the fun of being dropped into a new social interaction is that you're walking around as yourself. So you're walking around with your medicine, which could be the perfect solve (laughs) for someone in the room. And someone in the room might be holding the perfect salve for you. (laughs) I said solve with a bit of an odd accent there, but salve (laughs) is what I meant to say. I really love the idea of friendship as recognition, you know, or at least sparking with recognition. Because, I mean, I know in our friendship, when it first started, that's exactly how it started, is I'm there at this event and I listen to you share your work and instantly I just recognize you. I recognize what you're speaking about. I recognize why you're speaking about it. I recognize the journey that it takes, that it involves to be interested in the kind of things that you're sharing and the bravery and the dedication of, you know, many years of honing yourself that you have to do to get that good at saying it. So I think recognition is a really, really interesting one. And it also kind of makes me think that for us to have more friendship in some ways, it's like we have a certain kind of a duty or responsibility or at least invitation to experience a a wide breadth of experiences, you know, because it's almost like if you stayed in a a white room your whole life and all there was was small white objects or whatever, and you went out into this world full of colors, how could you recognize anything? And every day as you go out and you learn and you grow and every extra adventure that you have, you know, you're adding to this palette of things that you, you recognize. You and I might not have recognized each other in the way that we have at the age of 12. (laughs) Maybe in our case we would have, but I think it would apply in a lot of cases. Do you understand what I'm saying? Definitely. I mean, I believe that friendship is holy, just as all the important relationships in our lives 
I see as holy. Often those are divine appointments. And so sometimes that connection is immediate because we recognize it's almost like there is uh, an invisible arrow pointing to a person and that person <laughs> glows for us because we made it in on the game board of this life of sort of bouncing around and hopefully following our intuition wherever we can to get to our divine appointments as much as we can or be rerouted to them. It's a beautiful moment when we are in a place where we have an encounter, where we have that experience where where we feel like an arrow is pointing and we feel like we're in the right place in the right time. And usually it's because that person does hold a profound gift for us and and that's mutual. It's in both directions. I think what I hope for myself in the area of friendship and also in the area of all things would be that I have as much friendship as can possibly sort of support my highest good. And that could ultimately look like friendship with more people, or it could be deeper friendship or just more time with one or two people. So for me, I'm not focused on those sort of doses of friendship being necessarily spread over many. There have been times in my life when I had a friendship that was so profound and intense and moving and so important to that era of my life that I look back at those couple of years and most of my time was spent with one friend. And almost all of my sort of friendship energy, friendship juice was with that person. But I can see now how incredibly important that interaction was to the development that I was going through. And I can see now, I'm thinking of one friend in particular, the profoundness of the gift that I received from that interaction. So my friendship juice of that era really was sort of concentrated on one person. So I like to just follow my intuition. And the most beautiful place for me to be at any one moment in my life, I can usually feel where that is. Again, it's that sort of sense of an arrow being pointed at one person or a group of people, or or sometimes it's many. There's another time in my life when I had just gone through a very challenging period, which was very, very hard and a lot of time spent alone. And the cure for that was to spend a lot of time with a lot of people, just being really social. I was also out dancing every night. And just the lightheartedness of that very, very casual, but sparkly, beautiful interaction with many people was so profoundly healing because it was the balancing of what I had been through, which was this heaviness and this aloneness. And so even though at, at that time in my life, I had fewer of those deep late night conversations where you truly see someone's soul. It was this sort of general lightness of just being together and celebrating being alive. That was exactly what I needed from human interaction at that moment. And it was as healing as any direct one-on-one -on -one connection I could possibly imagine. So something that I you know hear you reference a lot as you're speaking is that the friendships that you've had affected your work or where you were based on different places in your life. There's a constant kind of coming back to this interrelation between 
these external sources of energy or elements or however you want to say that. But with you at, at the core of it is something I hear strongly. And it's one of the reasons I have so much respect for you, you know, is you are one of the very few people that I know that I would say has a very inspiring relationship with the self that really does feel like a friendship. So what can you tell us about what it means to be a friend to yourself? What has that journey been like? Has it improved? Have there been, you know, ebbs and flows? What can you tell us? There was a huge change for me about 10 years ago. I got to a place where in order to move forward in my life and in my work, I needed to learn how to have a loving inner voice. Before that, I had, I would say, something a, a little bit more supportive than sort of the aggregate than we are taught to have as our inner mental voice. I think it's pretty common to have an inner mental voice that's a little bit like a middle school track coach, someone who tries to get you to perform better by sometimes showing you where you did not perform well, and there's some guilt there, and there's quite a lot of should. I'm hearing sort of a middle school gym teacher voice saying like, we both know you can do better. And you know, there's, there's that sort of like shame and punishment and encouragement and treating oneself well when one has accomplished and then mm. sort of guilting oneself when one has not. So I think that's pretty average to have that kind of inner voice, mental voice. And I had something that had an aspect of that to it too. I would say a self-love that was conditional. Mm. And I realized that to move forward in my life, I had to get to a place where my inner voice, my mental voice was unconditionally loving where I had my back always, and that it was just this beautiful, safe place of support. And so to get there, I actually read a book on cognitive behavioral therapy, which is sort of the mainstream psychology way of doing this. Cognitive behavioral therapy, and the person who invented it uh, it was invented here in the States in maybe the 60s or 70s, I think. The psychiatrist who invented it wrote a book on it, and the book's called Feeling Good or Feel Good or something like that. So I bought the book, and I taught myself how to do it from a book. In the beginning, the book teaches you how to start a journal where you write down every negative thought that you have. And then you learn the categories of negative thoughts. I can't remember how many there are, like seven categories or nine categories or something like that of negative thoughts. So you write down your negative thought and then you categorize it and then you rewrite it in your journal, a thought that is truthful. So an example of a negative thought would be, nobody wanted to sit with me at dinner. No one ever wants to sit with me. So that would be all or nothing thinking. And then you categorize it, all or nothing thinking, and then you rewrite it and you say, most of the time, someone does choose to sit with me. Every once in a while, I sit alone and no one chooses to sit with me. But most of the time, I'd, I'd say, honestly, <laughs> nine out of 10 times, <laughs> someone does sit with me. So you just sort of, you get accurate. You go from sort of the negative thought to the more accurate thought. 
Anyway, in the beginning, when you start doing it, it's quite a lot of time a day that you spend writing down these negative thoughts. Imagine how much time it would take to chart every negative thought. But what happens is your first week, you have like, I don't know, 70 negative thoughts a day. And the second week you have 60 and the next week you have 50 and two months into it, you've got four negative thoughts a day. And, you know, if you keep going with it, you have one or no negative thoughts a day or something like that. So it's quite a big commitment of time, but I put in the time and I carried that journal around and I really started paying attention to that voice. And when I came to sort of understand just sort of the power of having my own back, being unconditionally loving and supportive of myself, I created an environment where my mind was a safe place to be. Honestly, I became sort of like the loving companion that every person deserves to have. Every Mm. person deserves to have that unconditional support. This is a hard place to be. We signed up for the hard job by coming here. And we are so loved and supported by the divine in ways beyond our comprehension. Mm -hmm. And when we begin to love and support ourselves the way that a unconditionally loving friend or unconditionally loving parent really on earth we might not ever have that experience other than the unconditional love that we experience from the divine which again often people aren't perceiving that so when we begin to support ourselves unconditionally like that have our own back then our mind becomes a safe place to be, our body becomes a safe place to be, our experience becomes a safe and comfortable place to be. And for me, that changed my whole life. I couldn't possibly overstate the importance of that change for me. I made the change because I was going through a health crisis. And when I made the change in how I treated myself, my health miraculously, miraculously became beautiful and i'm i'm so grateful to be a person who is in excellent health and i truly believe that that was the important sort of turning around it was what happened in my mind how did that affect your work if at all nothing has ever affected my work more honestly so as a poet i spend on average monday through friday i'm I'm alone from when I wake up until about two or three in the afternoon doing meditation and writing poetry and editing poetry. And that's a lot of time to spend with yourself. And before I transitioned back to being a full-time writer, for a couple of years, I had a, a day job, like a desk job, and I was around people all the time during the day and also at night. And I was alone with my thoughts very little of the time. And so I was able to sort of get by with that sort of tough love kind of inner voice because I didn't have all of these hours of inner voice, hours alone. And once I transitioned to being a full-time writer, suddenly it was either I figured out my relationship with myself and made it a beautiful and supportive and safe and caring relationship or I was going to have to be busy all the time. There was no way to comfortably spend those hours in practice and in meditation and in work, doing my work, unless 
I had a loving relationship with self. So once that was in place, everything was able to just go from sort of standstill with my work, challenge with my work to just becoming smooth and then smoother and smoother and smoother and smoother with each passing year. That's really interesting to frame it like that. I've never really thought of it exactly like that, but it could be that one of the main reasons why so many people on the planet are so terrified to spend that time alone is because (laughs) when they're alone, it's just them and them. And like you say, the average is not that great of a friendship that we have with ourselves. And that's maybe the average. And you may even be generous there, honestly, because a lot of people on earth suffer from some pretty dark inner dialogue and feelings, you know, that they don't know how to control. And it's fascinating to me to connect that directly with an instinct to avoid that time alone, which of course, as you know, nearly completely prevents the creation of truly great work because great work is always a a long, long journey. You look at all of the ways that we have to distract ourselves, the many, many forms. And I mean, even as you're talking about being in this office environment, I can kind of imagine like as long as you're doing the work that you've got to do and then the bell rings and then the phone rings and then your neighbor says something and now it's time for a break or whatever. Those aren't bad things. But they're also not like great things, but they're also not horrible things. <laughs> so there's this kind of quasi zone that we've kind of all co-built, maybe at least in part because when it really comes down to it, this quiet time is really scary to us. Completely and rightfully so, because we're taught this inner voice by our community, by media. Every time I watch a TV show or watch a movie, I see the way that we are taught as members of this collective, this community to treat ourselves and treat other people. It's embedded in the coding of our media. And so those of us who were raised in houses where our parents had learned that and treated themselves and each other that way and, you know, movies and TV where everyone treated themselves that way, how can we but grow up to t- treat ourselves that way? How would, and you, how would you describe that? You mean describe? Well, you say you, you see, you know, how the media is, is teaching us, like in a few sentences or whatever. How would you describe well, it? Well, it's, it's that kind of hard on oneself. I think the underlying idea is that tough love is the best way to get productivity because humans are have a potential towards laziness and sloth, which is, I believe, untrue. Every person wants to contribute their gift in this lifetime. Every person wants to share what they have to share. And every person is trying the best that they can to do that. To me, it's a false premise that we have to be hard on ourselves because otherwise will be lazy. I think the opposite is true. We have to be gentle with ourselves. We have to be profoundly kind to ourselves so that the beautiful blossom of whatever gift we've arrived with can can open. It's just like uh, frost on a bud. You know, frost, uh, harsh conditions, that bud is not going to open. But a gentleness, a, a warmth, a warm sunshine, and that 
bud will become a beautiful bloom and a a full flower and go through a, a beautiful life cycle. When we create a generous, loving, kind environment for ourselves, a mental environment for ourselves, we water and provide sunshine to the gift that we've brought. And every single person arrives with a profound gift. Every person arrives with a unique gift. What is equal about those gifts is that every gift is equally profound. But other than that, every gift is perfectly unique and needed and called for. The symphony that we make as human beings together, that symphony requires the note of every person and every person's note is unique. And it is a gentleness and a kindness and a softness that we give ourselves that allows our note to bloom most fully into that into that collective symphony. So my experience at this point in my life is very intuition-based. And so I'm able to feel what is most balancing and most enriching for myself. And when we live in a way where our intuition directs us, then we're always getting information about what is right for us at that minute, at that moment. A question that I ask myself all the time is, what's the most loving thing I could do for myself right now? And often it's go into my meditation practice or begin writing a poem, but often that poem starts with me taking a walk around my neighborhood. There are beautiful trees in my neighborhood. Often it begins with taking a shower or pulling a book off the shelf and reading that book, or really it could start anywhere. But when I ask myself, what's the most loving thing I could do for myself right now? I get the answer that leads me directly into the heart of what will support me as a person, which is also the same thing that will support me the most as an artist and as a person who makes work. Because it's when I am most fully stretched into being myself, the poems really flow Mm. effortlessly out of me. And so if I take a walk or, you know, won't want to take a hot bath, that's usually the thing that leads to the poem or or the non-poem. Rest is an incredibly important part of my process of work making. Sometimes the most productive thing I could possibly do is take a bath, take a nap, read something, go for a walk and do no writing at all because that's what's needed. So I can feel where balance is. I can feel where I need to adjust to get to a place of balance and sometimes that is a more rigorous day and sometimes that's a more restful day okay well a few things from that first does the voice of your intuition change over time as your inner voice did are they at all related no the voice of intuition comes directly from the heart it doesn't change now our ability to hear it changes so we have two centers of information in the body. There's a voice in the mind and there's a voice in the heart. Most people in contemporary America, and again, this is different for everyone, but most people 
their mind voice, the volume is turned up higher than their heart voice. And their heart voice is perhaps a little whispery and their mind voice is a, is a little bit louder. This may not be the case for you, but for most people, it's that way. And so when I started working with intuition, I learned how to turn my mind voice down and turn my heart voice up. And I learned how to recognize which voice was which, because you also hear the words of your heart voice in your mind. So it takes practice to learn when you hear something in your mind, whether it's your mind voice or your heart voice. But I learned, I learned through practice and that's because your heart voice is unconditionally loving. It is loving without condition every time. If there is one bit of judgment or condition, it's not your heart voice. What's the purpose of the mind voice? I mean, the mind is one of the most exquisite tools that we have. I'm so grateful for the mind. I'm so honoring of the mind. The first part of my life really was very mind-focused, and I'm so grateful that I studied and I... Developed. I, yeah, I developed and I practiced and I enriched it, and I, I'm, I'm so grateful that I have so much knowledge to draw on and it enriches my experience it enriches my work it, it enriches my understanding but i never confuse the value of knowledge and the value of love-based understanding or connection i live in the seat of the heart it is the seat of the heart that is my central seat of this part of my life and then i think of my mind as this beautiful honed tool that I can call upon, but always in support of the heart's work. Beautiful. What is your mind voice saying right now? It's very quiet. I can't hear it. <laughs> what about your heart? My heart voice is, is just very grateful to be here. We're, for those in Radioland, Jess and I are sitting on a beautiful couch it's twilight. There's a golden light that's coming in that's bathing us. Uh, we're in a beautiful living room. There are pillows scattered around. It's a beautiful moment that I'm grateful to be sort of stretched into. So thank you. So intuition and heart voice are interchangeable for you um, semantically? Yes, it's all, it's all coming from the same place. Okay, and if somebody was wanting to get more to a place where you are, which I don't think is a common place where you can so confidently say, I can tell when something is going to enrich me or, or when it's not. I think that's a really key attribute in the journey of becoming deeper into our potential of who we could be. So what are some like tips or advice you would give somebody who maybe is still struggling with that knob in the brain and how loud it is? and maybe isn't quite sure sometimes which is the intuition and all of that. Well, one of the most empowering things I've ever realized on my journey was that all advancement was related to practice and practice was simple. It is no different to learn how to differentiate whether you're listening to your heart voice or your mind voice, then it is learning how to play the piano or be okay at frisbee golf or whatever, or, you know, go from it's your first day in a ceramics class to, oh, I can sit at the ceramics wheel and I can make a pot that 
you know, I'm going to use in my house. It's no more time consuming than any interest or hobby that you might decide that you want to invest your time and energy in. And when I realized that, that was a doorway because there are hours in the day. I have time to give to it and I have focus to give to it and and it matters to me. So with each aspect of, I, I guess, a kind of evolution of my experience here, I would see something that I wanted to sort of work on to get to a place of more comfort and I would just find the person. There are so many beautiful teachers who teach on all the aspects of coming to be a person who feels comfortable in their experience, a person intuition connected. And so I realized that there's this great variety of teachers that are living. And for $14 or $16, I could pick up a book on this or that and and I could just start practicing and and in a really relatively small amount of time if I showed up to the practice of working on this or that aspect of hmm. what I wanted to bring into balance I could make great great changes of far less time really than it would take me to learn how to make a mug on a ceramic wheel. Like, a, I want to say a quarter of the time it would have taken me to learn to make a mug on the ceramics wheel. And I was able to sort of tweak my, you know, my self-relationship. Beautiful. Friendship with God or the divine. What does that mean to you? Does such a thing exist? I mean, really, that's a pretty easy friendship because all you have to do is open up to the unconditional love that is pouring your way all the time. (laughs) So what a wonderful friendship to have. I mean, that is unconditionally loving in your direction all the time. It's we stand under a waterfall, a never-ending waterfall of divine love that is beyond our comprehension and that's our physiology is such that it is actually literally beyond our comprehension and so what a friendship i mean you're you're lucky if you have any experience ever with another human being that is as unconditional do you think it is just one way though or is there a duty or a role back well i think Did you say duty? Well, I mean, when you think of friends, it's like it's a two-way street usually. I do not feel any condition of expectation on the other side. Now, what happens is that love turns a water wheel. It's an energy, and when it comes in, it makes that water wheel turn. So simultaneously, the love that's poured into you also pours out of you and it ends up being like a circuit. It ends up being like an infinity symbol, but not because it's presented as a condition that, you know, if I give you this love, you must return it. You must turn the wheel and then it has to come back to me. It just happens that way because that's the nature of energy and that's the nature of love. But at least for me, it's naturally when you when you start to feel the great beauty of that divine love, how can it not 
just flow right out of you, right back in that direction. But honestly, any direction it flows is that direction because we're (laughs) all connected and we're all part of the divine. So if love comes into us from the divine and it goes out from us to any person that we pass walking down the street, it is going to the divine and divinity applauds us for being a part of that circuit of love energy. Beautiful. Uh, If you wouldn't mind, would you read us one of your poems that you brought? Yes. My heart has rooms. Unlovable, unloving, bring them here. I will love them first. My heart has rooms. Years ago, its chambers had to spread. Soon they'd fit an apple, a notebook, a phone book a chair. Soon each was a sitting room, a chapel, then a synagogue, then a hall of state. Soon there was the space for all constituents. Soon long benches spread. Soon high doors were spread. Anyone can love the young, the old. Send the hard, the strong, those whose chambers seem to house just blood, those who were not loved and do not love. I've built benches where we'll sit till heaven fuses us forever with plain light each other. The hurtful, the brutal, the cursing, the cold. By a window under cloud, I'll sit with them gingerly, unspeaking until the morning we learn why wow (laughs) so beautiful thank Thank you so much for sharing with us ah thank you